as a sex offender? such a shocking image that it 
I just intuitively felt that there was a, a movie in, in that mouse somewhere. And, um, and then the amazing thing is that in the time it took me to make the movie, from the moment that I saw that photograph to the time we made the film, the real science um, evolved exponentially to the point where, where when we started shooting the film in the UK, they had just legalized the creation of animal-human hybrids. So it was, a, it was a really interesting situation where I almost felt like you know, the real science was going to eclipse my movie. How effective do you feel um, that that movie is? How effective do you feel horror in the genre is um, as a social commentary? Oh, well, I think that's a great question. Because I think, I think horror is more equipped than virtually any other genre that we're dealing with um, social issues. And, uh, you know, I've, there's been a, many books here about this, I think. But if you look at the history of horror and how it evolved, I mean, it very clearly, the subject matter of horror films clearly parallels the anxieties of whatever era those films are made in. And, um, uh, you, know, this, you know, like the giant radioactive bug films from the 50s or, you know, obviously being a reaction to the fear of nuclear war um, or in the 70s, um, slasher films, obviously a reaction to the fear of promiscuity. So, uh, yeah, I think that they're closely linked. I think that horror is really, it's, it's such a maligned genre, but really it has, it's the genre that's best equipped to deal with what we are truly afraid of, but albeit you know, through the lens of fantasy. And, and therefore, we can kind of confront things that we're uncomfortable with um, indirectly. And, and obviously, this movie being as beautiful and Freudian as it is, you know, uh, hopefully, you know, kind of pushes into that zone. Hi. Uh, I have two questions. The first of which, um, I was very, very impressed with the effects in the film. Uh, so I was curious as to how close your uh, original visions of Dren through the different stages were portrayed via those effects, and uh, was there anything that maybe you had envisioned that didn't quite make it to the film, or something that was brought to your attention as you put it in the film that wasn't originally there? Oh, thanks. <clears throat> well, you know, the, the creation, Dren is a child of many parents. There are a lot of really great designers and visual effects artists involved in not only rendering her on screen, but actually conceptualizing her. And, and it was a very long process for me to make this film. So, so the design process was actually quite long as well. And, um, uh, but I have to, I've got to confess, like, you know, walking into the theater and seeing the poster of Dren just was so amazing to me because um, it is very close to what I had hoped she would be. I mean, we were really lucky on this one. I think I was very happy with the way she turned out. And, but all, all along the way, you know, there Anyone who's involved in any kind of creative endeavor knows that the best things come out of accidents, and and you know there were definitely elements of her physiology and so on that just came about by accident. And um, for instance, there was one scene that we cut out of the movie because I couldn't afford to finish it, even though we had shot it, um, where Dren grows arms. It was going to be a scene where um, when Dren is in her early stages, she doesn't have arms, and then uh, there was going to be so there's the first scene where we're kind of introduced to her, and then there's going to be another scene where Elsa is making notes into her tape recorder while she's observing Dren, and then she has to leave, and Dren re goes to her, but she reaches the end of her chain, and she's kind of trying to get to Elsa, and all of a sudden these arms burst out of her body, and she, she hugs Elsa with these kind of gooey, bloody arms. And, um, but we cut the scene out because it was, that scene was going to be a $400,000 scene. Thank <laughs> you.
Tyrannosaurus Rex arms. So you got the idea that they were slowly emerging. Um, and then my second question, I've actually been a fan of some of your previous words, um, and I've noticed that you have a, a penchant for using uh, small and intimate casts. Uh, and I was curious as to uh, why uh, you do that, and um, is there anything behind that? And uh, I know that I've read online that there uh, that you may be working on the new Swamp Thing uh, film, and I wanted to know if you were going to hold that through towards that as well. Oh, cool. Well, uh, well you know, once again, I have small casts. I have small budgets. It really comes. I, ha I hate to say, but it really comes down to that simple fact. And um, and unfortunately, I have to say about Swamp Thing, I've been investigating that Swamp Thing. Is, for those of you who don't know, is actually a really fantastic DC comic book character. And, Something I would love to turn into a movie, but the rights are very complicated. They're really this is like a legal quagmire. So I don't think Swamp Thing's coming around anytime soon. But if I did do it, I mean, I think you could kind of take that approach because it's a very intimate story. It's another, another similar kind of splice type story, except this time it's about a woman who falls in love with a big vegetable. <laughs> not exaggerating. I, um, I wanted to know, since you did research on a movie with different geneticists, outside of the mouse with the ear on its back, what was the freakiest thing that you've seen, like hanging around geneticists and in these labs? Like, what, what is out there that we don't know about? What was shocked us? <laughs> oh, great, good question. Uh, I'll, I'll, let you, I'll tell you a few things. Well, I didn't see this, but it was I, there was an experiment that was described to me. It's a very common experiment um, uh, with students genetics. Um, and uh, it's a, a little known but interesting fact that uh, fruit flies have a lot of similar genetic material to humans. They're quite, on a genetic level, they're very, very similar to human beings. So they, they geneticists conduct a lot of experiments on fruit flies. And one of those experiments is if you took the gene in a fruit fly that produces, that makes the eye, called the eye gene, and you multiplied it and spliced it into the fruit fly, you get a fruit fly covered in eyes. I was so amazed when I heard that. Um, but that's a, a very common experiment. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, no, it's really, it's pretty freaky stuff. Once you start to dip your toe into it, you realize like it's really weird. And I mean, this is in no way a documentary, but I, as much as I could, I tried to stay true to the real science. And um, you know, the way the labs look in this film is pretty much the way real genetics labs look. I had real geneticists in the background, you know, doing the background action. And, um, I mean, there's some science, like the Betty machine, the birthing machine doesn't really exist, but, but by and large, everything you've seen in this film is, is within the realm of possibility now. So, who knows what's going on somewhere in some dark little lab. Uh, I'd like to know how you came up with the idea of the legs, and especially the feet, and will there be a splice too? Well, uh, the legs, you know, I, I, I can't even tell you. I think what I was trying to do with Dren overall as a creature was, I thought, unlike most monster movies, we should be very subtractive with the design. We should take the human form and should be, as opposed to putting things on top of it, adding things, which is usually what is done in movies. It would be interesting to, to remove things or to alter things. Um, sometimes 
is often with the case with films. You know, it's just a huge buildup, and then and then you know you have to do it really really fast. And then we had about 14 months of post production. So I, we were shooting the film. We started shooting in late 2007, and we finished in early 2008. And uh, uh, and it was shot in Toronto, which is my hometown. You know, a lot of actually people I grew up with. David Hewlett, who's, who plays the bureaucrat Barlow, is an old friend of mine. We went to high school together. Hi. Um, throughout the writing process, was there a particular reason for keeping her voiceless? And um, what, where did the uh, sounds come from? Oh, great. The sounds that she does make. Great question. Well, I, I considered having Dren speak, but it's really hard. I have to say, it's really hard to write dialogue for an animal human hybrid. Because it's just inherent, inher you know, there's just something inherently silly about it. And I, I ultimately, I think it's better that we don't know what Dren is thinking. And if she can speak, if she can communicate, it'll be too easy to know. And it's it's a little more. I think it would it would actually take out some of the tension from the film because you never quite know what's going on in Dren's mind. And Clive and Elsa truly are never sure what she's going to do or what she's going to become. And if, if she can communicate that, I don't think that would be the case. Um, but in terms of creating her voice, uh, all of the sounds she makes are, are done by human performers. And it ended up, I think we ended up having like 10 or 12 people actually contributing to Dren. Just different, you know, the, the, the sound editors did an amazing job. Like all of her vocal tracks are spliced together from like little bits and pieces. And it, it took them many months to do it. But we decided, we realized early on we had to have humans because we needed to have people who could emote and perform. You know, uh, very often creatures, if you see a creature movie, the sounds come from other animals mixed together, but Dren was such a character and so emotive, we, we really had to have uh, human performers. What have you learned from your first movie, The Cube, to making this in terms of working with actors and shot choices? And secondly, what's it like working with uh, uh, Del Toro? Well, uh, every time, you know, you make a movie, you, you learn. It's always trial by fire. And, uh, you know, so the problem with me is it takes so long between movies, sometimes I forget stuff. And uh, I actually cut out a few scenes from this film that we shot early in the schedule because I just think I did a really bad job directing. Uh, but I, I think I learned, you know, every movie has different requirements. And I think with this movie, as opposed to some of the other things I've done, I decided to let the actors lead the camera. I, I tried to be, some of my other films are a little more uh, overtly stylish or, I don't know if that's the right word, but you know, a little bit more formal in the way they're composed and shot. And this time I thought, this is, I should let, I should kind of remove myself from the film and I should let, let this, let the drama be led by the performers. And, um, because I thought the movie's so outrageous that if I got too flamboyant, if I got too Terry Gilliam, that it would just, uh, it would be too much, you know? So I, it was kind of scary for me because that, I, I felt, at some points I thought, am I shooting this like a TV movie? But, um, but that's the approach I took. And then in terms of Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro, as I'm sure you know, is just like a great filmmaker. He's a, a great empresario for the fantastic arts. He really supports a lot of artists and filmmakers, and I was just lucky enough to be one of them. And um, he was he's basically Dren's godfather. He was just there to lend his name and legitimize us and legitimize the film. And, um, and then in post-production, I, I spent a little bit of time with him in the edit room, and he gave some great advice. So, uh, yeah, he's just an awesome guy. If you ever happen to meet him, uh, he's one of the great people. Very gregarious, fun Mexican. <laughs> Why 
I can't tell you what she's mixed with, actually, because um, the whole idea behind Bren's physiology is that five males have used the same genetic template as Ginger and Fred. So it's the same basic idea, except they've added human DNA to that. But somewhere along the way, um, these things that are known as junk genes, which are basically dormant genes that we all have within us that are kind of the leftovers of, of evolution, have been triggered. So that's sort of why, that's my explanation anyway, as to why Clive and Elsa can never really predict what Bren is going to become or what her ultimate form is going to be, because there are all these unexpected components that have sort of been triggered in the process. Um, but the idea is that they've combined, in their initial template, they've combined all kinds of things, plants, animals, amphibians, I mean mammals, you know, birds, a whole bunch of things. And one of the things I found really fascinating doing my research is how much genetic similarity there is between us and a flower. We're actually like not as far apart as you might think. It's really wild. Like there's a lot of commonality between all life forms on this planet. What was the hardest part of uh, merging live action and CGI? Uh, oh, that's a good question. Um, it was, uh, you know, what was, it's just, you know what, it's just really uh, tedious. We had 14 months of post-production. It was 14 months of looking at the same material over and over and over. And for CG stuff to really work, I found it's all about the, the last 10%. It's, a, it's a, like the little, little details that sell it. And, the, and, it's, and so you kind of have to push it as far as it'll go. Um, but actually, it's very easy to work with because it's a post-production thing. The, the stuff that's a little more tricky when you're shooting it you know, are the physical effects. But I really made a point with it this film to, to try to use as much physical stuff as possible because I always think that, you know, the physical element, um, even when it is always, let me put it this way, that digital effects are always best when they have a physical component as part of, of how they're designed. And, um, uh, yeah, so I, I was really lucky. I had an awesome team. I had K&V did the makeup effects. They're a very well-known, respected effects company, makeup effects company, and then um, two French companies and a Canadian company did the digital work. They're all really, really great. Thanks. Thanks. Oh, Gary. Okay. Uh, sorry. Gary asked to have my question about David Hewlett, but was he did he audition for the role, or you just kind of knew he that you wanted him to play uh, that character? Because I'm familiar with his work from uh, he made a Dog's Breakfast and uh, oh, yeah. Stargate. So. Oh, thanks, Brad. Yeah, David is. Uh, no, I'd never make him. I'd like to make him audition, but yeah. I can't do that. I went to high school with him. He's a very dear old friend of mine. I always try him. Every movie I've made virtually has David Hewlett in it. So I like to torture David as well. It boils down to I like to put him through a lot of agony and stick him in a tree. Or he usually dies, you know, at some point in the film. And uh, David's a great guy. He's, he's best known for his role in Stargate at Lewis. Would it have been easier to sell a movie that demonized science, and um, why did you choose not to do that if it would be easier? Oh, I'm so glad to hear you, that, that you think I didn't demonize science, because uh, you know, if, because I don't think I did, or I tried not to, and, and I really, I have nothing but respect for you know scientists and geneticists who do this kind of incredibly important work, um, and. Uh, I was I was a little bit afraid that you know I mean clearly this is a cautionary tale of some kind but I was afraid.
make it as an anti-genetic medical research movie, which it absolutely is not. I mean, it really is. It really is about two very well-intentioned people who aren't quite prepared for the creature that they make, and you know, step into a, a, an area that they're just not um, uh, mature enough to, to properly deal with. But I, I really, I mean, I think it's inevitable that this kind of work is going to happen, and and to oppose it is really just is not the point. It's it's about how we deal with it. I think that human beings from the very beginning have always altered their environment. That's just natural to us. And now that the technology exists, I'm sure we're going to start altering ourselves. And, and it, really the question is, how do you do that in the most responsible way? On that, on that same note, really, really quick, have you, have you faced any religious like backlash with the movie? Yeah, that is a good question. The question is, have I faced any religious backlash? I haven't, um, no, no one's, uh, I don't even know where, you know, people who, I think maybe they would love this movie. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe they would hate it. I, I really have no idea. Yeah, no one's, I, it's funny, I haven't had any kind of response. To, I mean, in a way, I don't think of the film as being terribly political. I really think of it as being about, you know, in its more abstract way, about people, about having to become responsible for the things that you make. And, uh, but yeah, that's a good question. No, waiting to be egged or paintballed or something by something that hasn't happened. I'm just wondering um, about the sort of switch in the two characters that happen. Um, early on, also is kind of the loving mother figure, um, while Adrian Brody is trying to get rid of her, of Dren, that is, but then later they kind of switch where Adrian Brody is kind of more of a loving father figure than, 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 than the kind of and Elsa trying to get rid of her. I'm just wondering what sort of accounted for that sort of character development when you were making the film. I agree. That's a really excellent uh, question, and I'm, I'm glad you picked up on it, because Clive and Elsa are clearly headed in two completely different trajectories. And Elsa is, of course, the one who bonds with the creature in the early stages. And then, and then as Dren grows and becomes an adolescent and begins to connect more with Clive, she becomes jealous. And, and then Clive becomes the, the parent or guardian that is the closest to Dren to the point where things get a little bit out of control. But, um, uh, but I think when you, the reason for that, I think, is simply that when I made this movie, I wanted to make a creature film. But I wanted to take a creature film and splice it with a relationship story. And, and I felt that that's what would make this film unique because it kind of begins in a very classic Frankenstein sort of way. And I think where the movie hopefully becomes more original and interesting is, is when Clive and Elsa take Dren out of containment and put her in the barn. And it, it sort of turns into a hostage story. Just at the moment where, in most cases, in a story like this, the creature would escape and wreak havoc in the world. This actually becomes more about the humans becoming monstrous, and really, Dren is just a catalyst for bringing out their their darker nature, and uh, and, and in fact, is quite you know as a as a character is quite innocent. So um, so it, so that kind of character arc, which I think is fairly complex, is is really the reason I wanted to make the movie. If I if I couldn't have done that, then I, I, I frankly I wouldn't have wanted to have made the film. Well, once again, I thought it was a great movie. Um, for the young lady, she was talking about the religious aspect. Um, I'm surprised you haven't gotten a reaction from people like that. Well, <laughs> but um, also in the same note, um, that transformation that you were talking about, um, when, did, when did you decide? Because, I mean, when, when he goes in and, and he's sleeping with, with Dren and, and the woman comes in, I thought like a freaky three-way was going to go. <laughs> I didn't know 
moral issue of, of what you think is right or wrong. You know, so how far do you actually push that? I, it reminded me of tests that they did, you know, the government did way back when, but without permission, and you just wanted to see the reaction, you know, right? So where would that end? You know, what's safe? Right. Yeah, well, I mean, I just think, you know, technology is is just a, a tool, really, and, and it, of course, it's, it can be, various forms of technology can be used for good or ill, it really comes down to human nature, and of course, we know what human nature is like, and I wouldn't want to rely on it, and, um, and so, yeah, you know, this, this is how these kind of problems arise. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, let's do one more. You guys work with Constantine. I just have a yes or no question. Um, Clive had a shirt that said, brings nothing to the table. Was that a oh. reference to nothing? Oh, oh, that's so sweet. No, no, his shirt says, yeah, I bring nothing. You can't see it in the movie because he's wearing a jacket. It yeah. says, I bring nothing to the table. No, no, actually, it, it truly wasn't. It was. <laughs> so that's a no, that's a no, but uh, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm really flattered to even know what nothing is. It rules. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Okay. One more question. Did you have anything to do with the huge sequel and prequel? No, I truly did not. That, in fact, there was, that's why, that's why there was a splice sequel, like if they said, if Warner Brothers said we wanted to do a splice too, I would, I would stay involved because for better or worse, it had nothing to do with the other two movies. Yeah. And, uh, People always ask me if I did or, you know, assume that I did, but I, I truly did not. Uh, I was going to ask, like, what did you think about them? Because they were pretty bizarre compared to the original. Yeah, well, I just feel sorry for the people who had to do it. Like, I just, I, I could have been involved and I was asked, but I just thought, like, what do you do with that? You know, it was hard enough thinking one movie in a cube, and uh, I don't know how you make, let alone three. And, uh, and believe me, once you've made a movie in a cube, you never want to go back. It's no fun making a movie in a cube. that seemed completely extraneous oh. while it led something to the plot. Right. It looked like the rest of the movie at all. Oh, no, 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 that's, that's, that's the original movie. Okay. There's only, the only thing we added is one shot of Dren's grave with the earth moving. And um, because when people seemed were getting confused about what was going on at that moment. And then I actually cut out, in fact, Joel asked me to cut out some of that chase in the woods. So he actually reduced it, but uh, but your reaction, you know, a lot of people go, oh, that's kind of like a typical horror movie, and um, and I have no defense for that. I just uh, that's well, what I know, thought was, was you know, the right who, thing to do. Any of us who sat through Whiteout, which he produced, right, almost recognized the. Oh really? Well, I mean that's a terrible Maybe film, that's but right. the, the point being that it has this generic look to it. Right, right, right. And he had, he had a hand in that. And right. Sort of oh no, 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 no! Really, truly, I had carte blanche there, and um, he was very respectful. He's been really great, and. So anything you don't like about it is, is my fault. <laughs> <laughs> I like the movie, but... Uh, thank you.